You're listening to a Parents at Work employer podcast. Hello, I'm Emma Walsh, CEO of Parents at Work. Australia would be a more gender-fair nation if parents assigned chores to children equally and schools ran more excursions aimed at developing students' self-confidence. According to a new report published by a recent University of Queensland study, Today I'm joined by co-author Dr Terence Fitzsimmons about the Hands Up for Gender Equality study which was undertaken to explore why so few CEOs in Australia are women. Terry is also the MD of the Australian Gender Equality Council and is joined today by fellow board member and CEO of Career Money Life, Sandy Hutchison. Let's find out more about the Council's work and importantly, delve into the lessons we can learn from this research as parents, schools and workplaces to support children, particularly girls, to develop the confidence and leadership skills needed to reach their career potential as leaders and tackle the existing stereotypical gender bias that exists in and outside the home. When we looked at the chores, the boys were doing the outdoor chores, the girls were doing the indoor chores. It is so important that we let girls know that anything's possible. Sandy and Terry, thank you for joining me here today. Let's start by talking about the mission of the Australian Gender Equality Council. Why does it exist? I know that it's set up um, recently. It hasn't been... Um, around for you know a huge amount of years. It's a relatively new organisation, yeah. keen to understand why it exists. And what are the key things the council is working on addressing in 2019? Terry, I'll direct the question to you first, please. So the council was established, um, well, the first meeting was back in 2015, 2016, when um, off the back of the filling the pool report in Perth, and I'd met with um, Liz Broderick over there, um, informally we were getting ready to present at a meeting over there and uh it was we found it quite astounding that there wasn't a national body uh representing the issue uh in the workplace so when all of these problems were identified um you know different bodies in different industries set up their own organization to try and tackle the problems within that industry but there was no um overarching body that was bringing all of these people together um, and the key problem, of course, is that they're mainly volunteer-based organisations, not much funding, and we found that a lot of these organisations are just reinventing the wheel. So one of the objectives of the council is to bring all of the um, bodies, the national bodies representing women in different industries together in one place so that they can share what they're doing, first of all, and, and uh, not repeat um, the work that's already been done, but also to try and get a, an understanding of what are the key issues confronting women in the workplace in terms of um, staying in the workforce but also progressing in the workforce. And so the Gender Equality Council's mission is to achieve gender equality in the workplace in Australia. And what are some of the areas of focus in 2019, particularly after the latest release of the Wajia scorecard? I'm interested in what your focus is now for the coming year. So we're actually getting uh, all of our member uh, organisations together at the beginning of April to work out a manifesto in the sense of what are what are the priorities, um, not only what are the issues, but what are their rank ordering, what are the first ones we should tackle. But um, generally speaking, it's anything that inhibits um, one group versus another from, from progressing in the workplace. So in the case of gender, 
there are some real standout issues that um, inhibit particularly primary carers in progressing in the workforce, or even staying in the workforce. And of course, the childcare system sits at the centre of that. So I think childcare is, is a major issue. Um, the second one is flexibility. So it's not just about the availability of childcare. And I, I'm not just talking paid childcare, it could be extended family, it could be um, spouse availability for care, but also employers and what they're doing around making it possible for primary carers to stay in the workforce or even to progress. Uh, and again, there's been a lot of work done on um, the flexibility side of things. And most people think flexibility means part-time, um, mm. you know, the kind of flexibility that I think would enable primary carers to progress is still full-time, but where those hours are at the discretion of the carer or certainly somewhere in between what's needed in the workplace and, and what the carer can do. Mm. But um, those two really stick out, I think, as issues that if we could tackle those, we'd be a lot further progressed uh, in the workplace. Mm. And Sandy, you work with a lot of employers really about trying to support employees and then, you know, by providing, you know, education and awareness programs as, as well as many other benefit, yeah, um, employee benefit services. Tell us, what do you think needs addressed in the workplace based on what, you know, Terry's talking about and just shared with us? What do you think um, are the priorities? So, look, I think there's a couple of, you know, obvious hygiene things around mm. pay equity. Um, mm. So, you know, if, if people are being paid the same, then um, the economic opportunities in terms of being able to afford better childcare or mm. uh, being able to manage um, two people working in a career and, and having balance on the home front, um, sometimes the fact that women get paid less becomes a variable to say, well, you can do all the childcare stuff because my income's more important. So pay equity and then the related issues around how that plays out in terms of super because, you know, we're seeing um, particularly sort of 50-plus women, there's a lot of women getting divorced mm. and ending up in a difficult financial position, um, including homelessness, um, uh, as a result of some of these, you know, policy settings that are driving unintended consequences. In terms of the workplace itself, I, I would totally agree with with Terry in terms of the concept of flexibility needs to become much more flexible. Um, mm. It's it's very much binary, part time, full time. I. I I'm sort of of the view, I think the whole concept of paying people for hours worked is an antiquated concept that we should agree on a set of outcomes and agree on a payment for those outcomes and how and when people achieve those outcomes is up to them in, in roles that allow that. Clearly, if you're driving a tram, you need to be there on the schedule. But for many roles, there's much more opportunity to have a model where there's inherent trust in the employee to achieve the outcomes and just get on with it and do it when they suit. Because that, for me, is the most stressful um, challenge in managing a work and a home life is when you have to choose between, it's a paradox between two rights. I need to be at this meeting. I need to be at my kid getting an award at school and they're both valuable and they're both important and how do I choose? And that's what mm. tears people apart. So the more that we can give people the flexibility to control and manage those things, it reduces the stress and it makes both sides possible. Mm. Now, part I realise that part of your mission uh, from, as a council, it's also to undertake research and, mm. and you've been doing that. Tell us about the kind of research that you're focused on and then we'll dip into one of the key pieces that you performed last year. Yeah, well, look, I mean, Terry really is the lead on, on all of this, but, um, you know, we're, we're looking at, um, 
you know, partnering with some of our organizations. So I say in terms of the super piece and, and the, the gap, we're working with women in super and that's so a part of our mission is not to reinvent the wheel, but to work collaboratively. So when part of our uh, membership base is already doing some research, what we want to do is leverage that and spread it around. But in terms of um, some of the research that we've been involved in, um, you know, Terry, you might want to comment on, we've got some exclusive access to the Wichia data and we're doing some really interesting analysis on best practice uh, mm -hmm. coming out of that. So perhaps I'll ask Terry to talk further about that. Yeah, so we're um, one year into our project with the Workplace Gender Equality Agency and what we have is the employer of choice data. So um, there's a workplace citation for best practice uh, in the workplace and every year uh, they get hundreds of applications. I think this year there are 110 plus organisations that received the accreditation. But to do that, they have to submit a whole pile of um, documentation, um, including what they're doing in different areas of the firm, uh, how they tackle it, what their policies are, what their procedures are, particularly their practices. Um, and so what we're doing is we're going through all of that data for the last um, five years and we're looking for patterns in that data that, that actually show um, the connection between not just the policy but the implementation of the policy and then how that affects uh, the numbers. So uh, pay equity, uh, as Sandy just mentioned, is one of those things that we're looking at, but also um, progression. Um, through that organisation and whether that's um, ticked up since they've been doing um, the, the various interventions that they've been doing. So um, we're hoping to have that report out in late November this year. So one of the pieces of research backed by the AGEC was the recent The Hands Up for Gender Equality report and the aim was to explore why so few women um, are CEOs in Australia. Tell us more about that. What did you discover from the research findings? So the genesis of that project was, again, uh, the Filling the Pool project over in WA. And one of the things that kept coming out of that project and the one before it actually about looking at why there are so few women CEOs was this issue of confidence. Um, and, of course, even in the mainstream media, you've got um, Sheryl Sandberg with her lean-in and, of course, Catherine Fox's counterattack, which is Stop Fixing Women. Mm. Um, and it's, it's a debate that's just raging on and on and on. And you, do women actually have less confidence in the workplace? Is that explaining why they don't put their hands up for promotions or for pay rises or um, projects that might enable them to do both? Um, and so uh, it's been pretty well known uh, in the psychology literature that you know, there is no real reason why men should be any more or less confident than women. Um, so what we thought we would do is go back to school because when we interviewed um, the CEOs and also the executives and managers for both of those projects, it was really clear that if women um, were saying that they felt they had less confidence um, relative to the men. Now, whether that was the men just not saying it, <laughs> uh, which I suspect that's probably more the case. But the fact of the matter is, you know, some of the most high-profile women in this country are still saying that they've got issues around confidence. So one of the things we decided to do was to go back to adolescence, which is where um, the CEOs and the executives were saying that they had acquired the early skills that set them up for the rest of their life and confidence uh, or self-efficacy and resilience were all part of that um, growing up piece. So that's what, what led us to go into the schools. Uh, and so when we were looking at the sample um, to test this idea, um, we weren't actually looking for single-sex schools. That, that's almost um, serendipity, I think. But what we were looking for was high matriculation schools, um, you know, the, the kids that were most likely to go on to uni study and then go on to an executive career. It just so happened in Queensland, top matriculating schools, both boys 
and girls' school. So that's how we ended up in that single-sex environment. And it's probably very lucky that we did because what um, what actually happened when we tested, you know, on the whole, boys versus girls, we found no significant difference in confidence at all. We found a small effect in year 10 where there was a slight difference uh, with the boys were a little more confident, but then it returned to normal back in year 11. Um, and we think that's got something to do with subject selection and the pressures you know, that are on when you're trying to make big decisions about the rest of your career. But um, when we did a deeper dive and, and had a look at what had been done before around self-confidence and self-efficacy, self-esteem, those kinds of research, we found that it was uh, actually pretty scary. The, all the previous research had shown that it didn't matter what they did uh, in terms of the environment, um, that the boys were at about, I think it's about age or nine, the boys were becoming more confident and the gap became quite strong by, you know, 12 or 13. There was even a study done where they went into 48 different countries uh, and they found the same effect, you know, that the boys were more confident than the girls. But that study was interesting in that there were lots of variations between countries and when it happened and how it happened. And it kind of leads you down the track of, well, you know, obviously it, it, it's probably situational or context-based. It's not um, biological. So then when we got our results, it's actually, to our understanding, the first time that a study's actually identified that there's no difference between boys and girls. And we think it's because of the, um, the single-sex environment. And when you go back to these other studies and they start um, trying to understand why there's a difference, they raise these ideas of, um, you know, it, it could be in the classroom with boys mugging around and then taking more attention from the teachers also be just basic gender bias and stereotypes that happen in the mainstream being reflected in the classroom through teachers' attitudes towards boys and girls, uh, even down to team sport uh, and the team sport literature about why girls opt out of team sport early. Now, all of these things were pointing us in the direction of, well, hang on, in a, in a single-sex environment, the things that were identified in past research as probably causing these differences aren't there in single-sex schools. And so it's a an amazing coincidence, if nothing else, that you eliminate these factors that the previous research has identified as causing the problem, and what do you find? You know, there is no difference between boys and girls. So the main the main thrust of, of the research was to find whether that was actually true or not. Mm. So in, in you know, with 10,000 students, that's what we found. Uh, but there was a lot of other interesting stuff came out of it around um, career choice. So, you know, with boys and girls um, having very different career or understandings of career interests, even in year seven. So, um, and they pretty much robust right through year 11. So what that means, of course, is if we're trying to get interventions around girls undertaking traditionally male careers or male job types, uh, that has to happen a lot earlier uh, than what we're doing at the moment. Most um, schools or even organisations that go into schools tend to go into secondary, not primary. Mm. Um, whereas it's very clear that the kids have already got those attitudes pretty early on. Um, so I think that was another another major piece. And the, probably the third thing that came out um, was this idea of the gendering of chores, gendering of um, activities. So not, not only, um, you know, are the boys and the girls doing different things, their parents are, are kind of setting them up to do those things as well. So... By that I mean when we looked at the chores, uh, for example, that they were doing, the boys were doing the outdoor chores, the girls were doing the indoor chores. Um, when you have a look at the time, even the, the setups of the schools themselves, the boys have three times the size of play area that the girls do in these schools. 
Um, and then the activities, you know, when you have a look at the, the hours that they allocate to activities, the boys are doing more outdoor uh, activities than the girls are. And, you, you know, it doesn't take much imagination to see the connection between indoor and outdoor being reflected in the um, gender stereotyping of different careers, you know, engineers and geologists and tradies being outdoors tend to be on construction. Um, all tend to be things that the boys are used to. Yeah, they're used to being outdoors. They're being forced outdoors in terms of working outdoors by their parents. So I think there's a lot of messaging there around um, what parents should be doing and, and what schools should be doing. So, um, Sandy, you and I are raising <laughs> girls and boys. We were just having that conversation um, before you joined us, Terry, and I have boys that are about to start high school. I've still got a, um, a little girl in primary school. Um, Sandy, tell us, you know, what do you think the implications are for parents based on these findings? What should parents be really focused and honed in on um, from this research that could be helpful to them when, when parenting their children look I, I think you know, first of all parents should read the report in full because there is so much in there um but I guess some of the the, the highlights yeah I have a, a 15 year old daughter and a 12 year old son so they're both right in the demographic and um I was thinking about the chore one and um not to be disparaging of, of males but I thought you know I equally has my have my kids do the in-house chores so helping with dinner and cooking and but my only my son does the gardening and the mowing of the lawn and I thought that's being driven by his dad so it's that role modeling of you know that's what his dad did so I think part of it is um, for maybe some of the males to be thinking about you know getting their daughter to do that because you know I think when you look at some of the um, drivers of confidence being able to do something like know how to mow a lawn as a girl is actually a real confidence builder or fix a car or change the oil or um so so i think it's getting those stereotypes out of our own heads um as parents but also thinking about you know how we're um how we're helping our children decide on where they're spending their time. So the extracurricular activities, whether it's sport or we talked about music mm. and, you know, the other things that are important to them to, to really deliberately think about what's going to actually build my children's confidence. Mm. Um, and, you know, I definitely think the school has a role to play um, the commentary about school leadership. And I, I was thinking, you know, there is so much more opportunity than just the elected positions that go to a very small number mm students to really the mandate should be how do we create an opportunity for every child to experience being a leader in some mm. way in the school because that had such a massive impact on their confidence and mm. you know I see that playing out um, mm. so I, I think whether it's in school or outside of school those opportunities to demonstrate leadership and giving them more freedom you know stop helicopter parenting let them go for bike rides on the, their own let them be out of the house for a few hours um, where you don't know where they are the whole time that builds their confidence and their resilience no mm. I'll come back to this leadership piece because it's interesting isn't it you're right in school there really is only a few elected positions mm. really that go to you know maybe the top five yes. or ten best and often of the, the best. same kids every year yes absolutely so they're constantly having their their confidence built you can almost predict exactly. how well those school captains are going to do exactly. outside and and what positions they might kind of self-perpetuate yes it does um and it's interesting because we don't teach self-leadership skills no. as a curriculum no. right in, in our school education system and yet we expect people to very quickly once they hit the workforce demonstrate 
huge amounts of self-leadership, right, yes. and self-direction and being able to navigate themselves in their job. You know, I certainly remember the first time I got given a job, it was like, here's a seat, here's a computer, um, start work on that. And, yeah. and I was expected to just sink or swim. And so we're not really preparing perhaps our, our children as much as we should be, either in our schools or perhaps at home, to get ready to lead yeah. quickly yeah. once they, you know, leave the home. Terry, thoughts on that? Oh, that certainly came through in the early research that we did on um, the, the lack of female leaders in the private sector, certainly in the listed public company space. And even the women that had made it into the CEO roles, and at the time there were only 46 out of 1,500 um, wow. ASX CEOs, and it hasn't really improved much mm. in the last decade, to be honest. But when you look at the childhood, um, and obviously there's a generational effect, but their childhood, one of the, the key things was the boys were getting messaging around leadership, like verbatim. It was just amazing. In fact, every single male CEO that we had interviewed for this for the study, without exception, was either captain of the football team or an under officer in cadets. And of course, in that generation, that was prep for Vietnam. So, and that was just uncanny, not a single exception. And then you go to the girls. Um, uh, sorry, the women in the study, when they were girls, they had no leadership roles whatsoever. And you're thinking, well, what's going on? And then that, that then became, well, where did they get that leadership experience? And that's why mentors played such a huge role in the female CEO's um, trajectory into these kinds of careers was that they were identified early as having ability and talent um, by a mentor, particularly a sponsor, who then taught them leadership or, or gave them an understanding of how to lead. And so it's critical, I think, that we actually give kids the ability to uh, understand what leadership is and how it works and then the ability to practice it as well. So going back to the hands-up um, study, the, um, it wasn't just having a leadership role that generated the self-confidence. It was actually um, leadership development and, and participation in leadership development, workshops, outreach, yeah. um, you know, um, weekend adventure activities, those kinds of things where they get an understanding of how this thing works. And, of course, on those Outward Bound kind of programs, they, they usually go out of their way to make sure everyone gets a crack mm. at leading an activity or leading, you know, mm. something during the session. And I think what Sandy saying is absolutely true. We have to be able to create opportunities for our kids to lead not just be the school captain, you know, obviously only one or two can be in those prefect captain roles, but it's it's not impossible to give kids the opportunity to lead a task or lead a project or lead an activity. And I think that really shone through in the research that um, those things really matter for self-confidence. Yeah. I think we need to recognise it's not all or nothing and I think that's, you know, easy to... Um, perhaps as a parent and also a child in a school environment, that if you haven't made the A grade, whether it be in sport or in academic achievement or in your leadership position, um, it doesn't mean you don't have the potential mm. to be a great leader, right? Absolutely. And I think still that we um, perhaps there's a narrative that goes on for parents and, and children that if you don't, as I said, make that A grade, then you're not going to. Ever. Yeah. Right. And we need to change that Absolutely. narrative. Um, I want to draw you both back to this piece on flexibility mm -hmm. around where we started. I, you know, it made me think about a, you know, conversations I guess I've had in my own personal circle around 
girl and boy choices, if you like, for career, right? So you sit around at barbecues, you have the conversation yeah. around, you know, how your child is doing, what they're interested in, what you're imagining mm-hmm. they might go into when they're older, right? We've all had those conversations. I am constantly dismayed and disappointed by how many parents, particularly mums, will say, oh, we're really, she's interested in teaching psychology or whatever it might be that's perceived to be a flexible career Mm -hmm. because they know that later on when they have children that will serve them well so they're literally steering their girls into careers that they know that they can do flexibly later and they're doing that unashamedly because they think they're doing the right thing Mm -hmm. to make sure that their you know their daughters have a career that they can fulfill right later on and I just think no (laughs) um you know I totally understand that sentiment and I wish that for my child too but I would hate to have to choose the occupation on behalf of my child because of that yeah yeah it's it's almost like giving up right from the start it is or or conditioning from the start the start that that they're not going to have a partner that's going to be equal or that their career might be the dominant career in the relationship or they might not even have a partner and have a have a very you know career focused life like don't predetermine all these things for them but, yes um yeah look I, I i i see that you know as i said my daughter's in grade 10 they're going through that right now they're thinking about where they're going to do the work work um experience and you know all of those things mm-hmm. are playing out and um you know it is it is so important that we um you know, we let girls know that anything's possible. All opportunities are available to them. And, you know, Terry, one of the things that really resonated for me was how unaware girls even more so than boys but all kids were about their parents occupations Mm. even at high school they didn't know what their parents did for a living like you know shame on the parents that we haven't had those conversations and preparing them for the workforce and Mm. understanding what works about and what we do all day Mm. and 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 our experience of going through education and building a career I mean that's the stuff we should be sharing with our children so they learn and also the part-time jobs you know again that was so profound in terms of impact on confidence and I think so many parents Parents would steer their children away from that because they want them to focus on getting the perfect ATAR score and not, and and in fact, that work experience is probably so much more valuable in terms of their success in life than Mm. getting a 95.5, you know? Mm. I I think, um, unfortunately, children haven't been invited into the workplace enough. Right, we're expected as parents to be involved way more than our parents ever were. Yeah, in our school, in our children's school education, whether it's volunteering or just being, you know, super present Mm. in where your kids are at. You know, we're we're very much counselled, aren't we, as parents of school age children today, to be as involved as you can be, and yet that in reverse hasn't happened. Children don't aren't invited into the workplace. Maybe if you're lucky to work for an organisation, it might have a family day once mm. a year, yeah. at which point your children are welcome. Yeah. Um, but generally that same transition hasn't happened the other way around. Yeah, Where, exactly. And so, which brings me to my next question, what do you think workplaces can learn from this research? Sure. Uh, look, I, um, I've for a while um, come to this um, position where I think that the main uh, dialogue seems to be saying to businesses, look, sort this out. And while there's, there's definitely things that businesses can be doing, particularly around flexibility, um, and I think they can be doing other things, which I'll elaborate shortly, I think the, the problem is we all own the problem. 
Um, you know, whether it's government, whether it's society, families, parents, schools and business. And we're sort of going, oh, well, you know, what can you do and what can you do? I think the, what really needs to happen is there needs to be, and, and we're a long way from this, a national dialogue around this issue. Mm. You know, why is it that, you know, we're here in, you know, nearly 2020 um, talking about stuff that we were talking about in 1980, you know, 40 years later. Mm. And I remember... I remember it distinctly um, in 1983 when, when I graduated in year 12. Um, you know, the girls you know, pretty much aced our course, mm-hmm. our, our year level. You know, there were those purple stickers, girls can do anything. Mm-hmm. You know, and in our minds it was like, oh, you know, they can, you know. And, of course, we find out that, you know, that generation, my generation, of those um, amazing students just didn't get to the CEO roles. They're just not there. You're thinking, okay, well, why aren't we... Well, why aren't we having a conversation about how important it is for everyone to participate in this? So the first one I already highlighted is that they need to be getting um, role models into primary schools. You can't be what you don't see. So there needs to be a tradies, women tradies, geologists, engineers, construction workers going into the schools. I mean, um, we've got that example of having the first two female fighter pilots in Australia, you know, those kinds of things to show girls that it is possible. But that mm. can be easily undone by them watching TV sitcoms, mm. you know, Mum Stays at Home, Dad Goes to Work, Goofs Off, you know, these kids are getting all this input. They're, they're getting it from the work uh, that they see their parents do and not do, from the chores that they're being asked to do and not do, and what they're seeing on TV of what one role what gender role is and what gender role isn't, and then what their friends do and what their friends' parents do. There's all of these inputs. So when we say to business, oh, well, you know, you should be doing this or you should be more flexible, or, yes, they should. Um, but then there's 90 other things that should be happening as well if we want this to embed, if we want the real change that we need to see in this country. We're not going to see it by one or two things, particularly by honing in on business. I think actually government's gotten away with it, to be honest. I think that they're, you know, it's not on any police agenda. You, you ask them what the top issues are facing Australia. Your gender equality is not even on their radar. Mm-hmm. Um, and it needs to change. If we're going to see any real movement in this, there has to be community messaging, and that can really only come from, I think, a national kind of campaign where we, we talk about this. We actually have these conversations. And one of the things Sandy said to me, um, you know, this idea of what are we saying to our kids around the table? Why aren't we having those conversations? How is it that whether 15% of the girls didn't know what their parents did, either of them, their mum or their dad, and they didn't know what degree they had? And why was it that the boys did? You know, is that, that conversation, that old male breadwinner, you know, son, you're going to have to go to work and you're going to have to do this, is that still happening? You know, and I think um, we no one's doing this deliberately. It's kind of like the gender pay gap, you know. It's, it would be pretty rare to find someone who deliberately sets about to pay women less than men. Mm. You know, they're out there, don't get me wrong. But the vast majority of the mm. pay gap problem is women going into one industry, men going into other, that industry being paid more than the other, you know, women not being able to stay in the workforce and get that tenure that you need to get into senior roles. All of those things are the biggest chunk of the pay gap. And all of those are caused because we're just replicating stuff over and over and over again, each generation, you know, like Dad going out with um, his son to mow the lawn. Mm-hmm. And it's it's seen as very positive, and of course it is, but not at the expense of the girls not doing it. So I think, yeah, while there are things businesses can do, I think the conversation needs to be everyone, all of us, recognising it, you know, that parents um, can make a real difference, but it's about what they're doing and what the kids are seeing. Mm.
Mm. Well, we know that work-life balance is, continues to be a problem in Australia, the ability to connect work and family life in a way that's integrated um, is still incredibly challenging, not just around flexibility but be- behind because, sorry, of all these stereotypes, um, you know, that we, we hold and, and the gender bias that we haven't yet been prepared to deconstruct and really properly understand. Um, I, I'm thinking just even, you know, my children love going to my husband's work. They just think that is um, such a fabulous thing to do during the holidays or, or after school from time to time. Actually, my husband works quite flexibly and is at home um, two or three days a week because that's where he can work from. But increasingly, the making the connection between where he goes to work, um, what that looks like, and, and having a, a connection where they feel also welcome when they're there mm. is incredibly important. Right. Yeah. And I think it's a symbol that we perhaps don't pay, you know, enough attention to. Mm. Um, and... You know, likewise, obviously, with my work, I've tried to bring my children into it as much as possible for them to understand what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, and really taking the time out to have those conversations and making, you know, giving them a role to be part of it. My my children, part of their job is actually to clean my office every week. (laughs) Um, So really, um, I think there is, you're right, Terry and Sandy, how we can together as as community uh, as workplaces and as government aligned to have these conversations better is incredibly important and I think obviously that's what your council has set out to achieve I wish you every success with it and I look forward to hearing how it goes and and obviously staying in touch with further research Mm. um, and uh, making sure that the good work that you're all doing uh, certainly is spread and, and we can all learn from it So thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for the opportunity and uh, appreciate it.